Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 3, Episode 78. Last week, I covered a third of three festivals mandated by God in Exodus Chapter 23. In that case, the Festival of Ingathering, modernly referred to as Sukkot. If you missed that episode, you should really go back and give it a listen. Which gets me to the next part of Chapter 23 where God lays out his plan for the Israelites in Canaan, which is where I pick up this week's episode. And with that, let's get started. In chapter 23, after a couple of paragraphs on the three mandated festivals, God tells the wandering Israelites how he plans to drive out those currently inhabiting Canaan. And depending on the translation, it involves either pestilence or hornets. Either way, not very appealing. And he lists out who will be driven out. In verse 23, naming the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. He also gives insight into why he may wait before taking action, not wanting the land to be barren for too long, lest wild animals take over. And I'll wait on covering the people until the period comes when the Old Testament narrative catches up. Their time is a-coming. Which gets me to chapter 24. In this chapter is essentially the story of how God tells Moses to bring several of the elders, over 70 of the most esteemed, up Sinai. But when they all reach the top, well, likely near the summit, only Moses is to approach God. The remainder are allowed to be close, but only Moses can get really close. Later, Moses reads to the people from the Book of the Covenant. There are also animal sacrifices. Apparently, Moses and the elders reascend the mountain. When they do, evidently, all of them not only see God, but more. From the text. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab, Abihum, and seventy of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. Under his feet there was something like a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. God did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. Also, they beheld God, and they ate and drank. End quote. After this, and the text isn't really clear, Moses ascends to the top of the mountain, this time with his assistant Joshua, leaving Aaron and Hur in charge. Moses stays on top for 40 days and nights. And that's chapter 24. No new people, places, or things to cover. Which gets me to chapter 25. And beginning in this chapter, and running through chapter 30, are very specific instructions from God to Moses about how to build the tabernacle, Ark of the Covenant, and all the other items he orders to be part of their worship of the one and only. God also gives him instructions about the priest, from what to wear, to how they are to be ordained, to the ritual sacrifices, and everything in between. My focus during these next few chapters will not be on the specific instructions, like the priest laying their hands on the head of a bull before it is sacrificed, or that the altar of burnt offering was to have horns on its four corners. 
You can find these things for yourself in the text. And honestly, my narrative really won't have much to add to that. Instead, I plan on covering the things mentioned that were not thoroughly recorded by Moses. Like, what is acacia wood? Or what is an onyx stone? In my mind, I can add much detail to this and certainly fill in many blank spaces. But before I do, just one word about these several chapters. There is a current in current research that argues that this part of Exodus was written much later, perhaps by the priestly class as justification for everything they did. The belief is mostly based on the part of the text that seems out of place, narrative that goes from historical recounting and the trials of Moses and the Israelites to very specific religious instruction and then back to historical narrative. And the usual caveat applies. This isn't my belief, but I do present it, just in case you ever run across it. And with that, the specifics that need to be covered specifically. It's in this section that we learn the Ark, while at least parts of it are to be constructed from acacia wood. Other things are made from this wood too including the tent of the meeting, the poles used to carry the ark, the table of showbread and its poles, the brazen altar and its poles, and the incense altar and its poles, all the poles for the hanging of the curtains as well as the boards used for support. In short, all of the structural features of the tabernacle, along with many of the religious pieces, were constructed of acacia wood and a whole host of poles. The use of this wood seems rather specific, but then you learn there are hundreds of species of the tree around the world. Fortunately, we don't have to concern ourselves with all of these, and I can focus on the handful found in the area around Sinai. In many of these areas, acacia trees are frequently the only plants in an otherwise deserted land. I can narrow the list of potential acacia species down as not all in the area would work for such pieces, accoutrements, and construction. Some of the acacia plants in the region amount to little more than shrubs, to the point that it's thought that the burning bush, from where God spoke to Moses much earlier in Exodus, but potentially in the same region, was a type of acacia shrub. And when you really start to dig in, the list narrows quickly, to the point of just a few leading species. When traveling through Sinai, as I'm sure all of my listeners have, these trees really stand out. Their canopies tend to be flat and slanted. The leaves are very small, and this helps the plant to conserve water. And when a drought rolls in, the tree can drop its leaves altogether. Like all trees, it has seeds, and these tend to show up after white flowers. The hard seeds are grouped together in a coiled pod-like bunch. And now for the part that really matters. In the desert, the tree grows extremely slowly, and this yields a hard and extremely dense wood perfect for something you want to last, like an ark and the tabernacle. Its heartwood 
sewed the wood towards the center of the trunk, is a dark reddish brown. And the wood is not only dense, but resistant to decay. Apparently, as the tree grows, it stores the byproducts of photosynthesis and other biological processes in its wood, in its heartwood. And these waste products serve a dual purpose. First, insects don't like to eat them, so it acts as a natural deterrent. And second, it helps to resist what little moisture may be encountered in the desert, also serving to preserve the wood. But there's a downside to a dense wood. It tends to be heavy. So you wouldn't want to use solid wood boards to build a tabernacle, one that you will be hauling through the desert for the next few decades. Instead, it would be much more portable to make the building, if that's what you want to call it, from wood poles supporting fabric, which is what they did. Heft and heavy wooden poles supporting cloth. Much more portable and easier to pack up, too. To this end, later in Exodus, in chapter 35, we see that the Israelites brought offerings of the wood to use in the construction of the tabernacle. And apparently, they gave plenty, as acacia wood was the only type of wood used in the construction of the tent of meeting, the sides of the courtyard, and the furniture and altars in the tabernacle. The tent of meeting itself was constructed of gold leaf covered acacia wood posts and crossbars stabilized the acacia wood panels and held the curtains of the tent of meeting in place. In the tent of meeting, the table of the presence, meaning for the bread, the altar of incense, sometimes called the golden altar, and the Ark of the Covenant were built from acacia wood, then overlaid with even more gold leaf. Gold-covered acacia wood poles were placed in gold rings on the four corners of each structure. When the Israelites moved, the poles were repurposed to lift and carry each piece of furniture, carried by hand as they went from location to location. Outside of the tent, out in the courtyard, the altar of burnt offering was built from acacia wood overlaid with bronze, and given the nature of bronze, it was not likely leaf, as it's not malleable enough to be hammered into a thin sheet. Come to think of it, there's nothing saying any of the pieces that are previously mentioned were covered in gold leaf. And that's a pretty big assumption on my part. It may have been gold that was thicker than leaf. The courtyard was cordoned off by linen and held in place by acacia wood poles. Historic rabbinic writings claim that the acacia trees used for the tabernacle and its assorted accoutrements were free of knots and fissures. They also claimed that they were originally hewn by the patriarch Jacob centuries earlier and had been taken to Egypt when he migrated to live with his son Joseph. In the ensuing years of prosperity followed by captivity, Israelites retained the acacia wood and when they exited, they departed with the wood that was by then at least 400 years old. The story ends with Moses asking for offerings to build the tabernacle, and everyone who had acacia wood offered at least some of it. 
There are a few possible candidates for the particular species of Cassia, specifically in Exodus, in Hebrew. It's identified as Shitta, which translates to Acacia. Since that was written, it has been identified as many different particular trees. About 100 years ago, so in the early 20th century, the general thought was that the wood was from a particular gum Arabic tree, which at the time was considered acacia wood. But research since then has shown that this particular tree is not as closely related to the acacia as originally thought. Not that the Israelites were that versed in genetics, but I digress. The reason the gum Arabic tree was considered the tree is that researchers thought the Israelites could have brought the wood with them when they departed Egypt, where this tree is more prevalent. Another possibility is the Acacia tortillus, alternatively known as the umbrella thorn Acacia, due to its shape. Rarely, it's called the Israeli babul. This tree is native to the area, in many other regions, including parts of Africa, the Arabian Peninsula, the Judean Desert, and parts of the Negev. So, it certainly would have been available to the wandering Israelites. It's a hardy varietal, surviving from the freeze point up to 122 degrees Fahrenheit, which is 50 Celsius. And that's a broad enough temperature range to be suitable for the area where the Israelites were wandering. It can also survive the dry climate, needing only a few inches or two and a half times as many centimeters of rain per year. It can also live in nutrient-poor soil, steep slopes, and even survive the sandblasting effect of frequent sandstorms, all of which are prevalent in the Sinai region. But then there are a few factors that argue against this being the specific tree of Exodus. First, in an extremely dry climate, it doesn't present as a tree, but more commonly as a small, wiry bush, a shrub. In wetter climates, it can grow up to 70 feet tall, which is 21 meters. But this too is only when it's in a wetter climate, and this climate would need to average more than 30 inches or 76 centimeters of rain per year. This is far wetter than the Sinai region. So, the trees of this specific variety that the Israelites would have encountered would not have been large enough to make boards or poles from, and more likely would have been of limited use, like firewood, or to make smaller objects. The bark would have been useful for rope or string, and tanning can be extracted, suitable for leather preservation, and to make dye and ink. Resin can be derived and used to make another form of gum Arabic, which at the time was used as a food additive and in the production of ceramic glazes. Its blossoms and subsequent seed pods were used as livestock feed, but depending on the specific climate where the wood could be harvested, it too may not have been large enough for the biblical tabernacle ark and everything else listed in Exodus. Another candidate species is the acacia cell tree, sometimes known as the shitta tree, and therefore the source of shittim wood. 
And this specific tree merits a mention in the King James translation of Isaiah chapter 41, verse 19, where it's listed alongside the cedar, myrtle, and olive. But that's the only place it's mentioned in that translation. The other two translations I use for this podcast, the New Revised Standard and the NIV, use the word acacia in that passage. What does all that mean? In this passage in Isaiah, it was probably the choice of the Old English Hebrew translators. That's all. The reason this is a candidate for everything the Israelites produced are very specific, and that's that it's native to the Sinai region, so much so that it actually thrives in the rocky floodplains, which is a bit of a misleading term for the desert. In order to thrive in this dry region, a tree has to be able to survive dry spells. In the case of this particular variety, it only requires about 3.5 inches or 9 centimeters of rain per year. This is less than the annual rainfall in the desert climate of Phoenix, Arizona, which averages nearly twice as much of the wet stuff. But that's not all. It can grow in altitudes ranging from sea level to 7,000 feet, which is over 2,000 meters. As a point of reference, this means it could be found almost all the way up to the summit of Mount Sinai, assuming the modernly named mountain is one and the same as the Exodus Mountain. When fully mature, these evergreen trees range in height from 20 to 30 feet, or 6 to 9 meters, and their shape resembles an umbrella, with a wide, somewhat flat, somewhat curved canopy, with most of the leaves and branches at the top, and a relatively bare trunk at the bottom. And with all of that, take your pick as to which tree it may have been. Obviously, there's no clear-cut winner, as the 3,000-plus years of debate certainly attest to. In my opinion, and remember, It's just my opinion. It may not have been one single species. In our modern world, we are far more specific in our attempts to classify things. Is acacia this specific tree or that? Is leprosy this specific disease or that? As we see in so many cases, ancient classification systems were far broader than what we use. Just something to keep in mind. Don't get terribly hung up on specifics when they don't matter. Just after the mention of acacia wood is onyx stone. This gem was to be used in the ephod and breastpiece for the priest. The ephod was a sleeveless upper garment the priest wore over their robes. It was worn between the robe and the breastpiece, so a middle garment. Exodus 28 gives us direction for it to be woven with gold, purple, blue, and scarlet threads made of fine linen and was to be embroidered with skillful work in gold thread. And sewn onto it were two onyx stones, and engraved on the stones were the names of the sons of Israel. As for the breastpiece, it was affixed to the front of the ephod and measured a one-by-one span, square. So what's a span, as a unit of measure? The general, so not exact definition, is that it's the width of an outstretched hand, 
from the thumb tip to the tip of the little finger, the pinky. In this context, a man's hand, but even with that, highly variable. Likely around 9 inches or 23 centimeters square, with two straps over the shoulder and the breastplate held in place by gold chains, and on it were two gemstones. Jewish rabbinical writings refer to them as shoam, thought maybe to be malachite or perhaps another stone known as heliodor. But this isn't the Jewish history podcast, despite some of the history I've covered thus far. All three Old Testament translations I use for this podcast call it onyx, so I'm going with that. Which leads me to my next topic. What is an onyx stone, and why would it be included here? Onyx is a type of silicate quartz that tends to have paralleled colored bands, but it can be a solid color. To say it's quartz really undersells it. It's related to agate, and the only difference is that onyx has parallel bands while agate has curved bands. And this may be similar to the acacia tree in that the difference between agate and onyx may matter more to us than it did to the ancient Israelites. It's found in almost every color, and since Exodus isn't specific, we don't really know the color of the stones on the priest's garments. The usual onyx has alternating bands of black and white, and is said to sometimes resemble the coloring of a fingernail. And to be honest, as many times as I've looked at it, I just don't see that. But I'm nowhere close to a gemologist. The most valued form of onyx is solid black, sometimes with thin bands of white. Of course, being the most valued type means it tends to also be the rarest, more common are red and multicolored stones. In our modern world, cheaper and softer carbon-based material is frequently sold as onyx. More often than not, this is calcite slyly passed off as onyx. Historically, going back at least as far as Pliny the Elder, so the first century AD, jewelers have been taking cheaper stones and attempting this charade. The real stone so the real deal, is found sporadically all over the globe, on six of the seven continents, with the only one lacking being Antarctica. But it may yet be sitting under all that ice. And, given its geographic spread, the Israelites certainly had a couple of large stones available to meet God's instructions. Add to this that onyx was used in Egypt as early as the second dynasty to make bowls and other pottery items. This places it around 2800 BC, which was well before Joseph, his brothers, and Jacob were believed to have immigrated to Egypt. Around the same time as the Israelite exodus, the people of Crete were using onyx as a gemstone, so it was available in the region. Finally, in Revelation chapter 21, literally the second-to-last book of the Bible, sardonyx is mentioned, at least in the King James Version, as a garnishment found in New Jerusalem. The NIV and New Revised Standard Versions simply list onyx in this passage. Sardonyx is usually brown with white stripes, and sardonyx 
is now my new favorite word. That's it for Onyx, and a good stopping point for this week's episode. Join me next week, when I'll pick up in Exodus chapter 25. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening and have a great week.